Hello and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. And in this first episode after the summer break, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Savanki Ramakrishnan, joint winner of the 2009 Nobel Prize in Chemistry and president of the Royal Society. Venki, welcome to the podcast. Good morning. Um, so here we are at the start of a new academic year. How would you describe the current state of UK science? Well, uh, there's a distinction between the current state of the world and the current state of the UK of UK science. The state of the world is very weird and unusual because of the pandemic and the restrictions it's placed on our uh, normal social interactions, uh, even on education and universities. Uh, research institutes like mine have had to put into place special provisions uh, which allow people to carry on working and so on. Uh, but I think UK science, uh, I would say, is doing well in the sense that, uh, well, firstly, the pandemic has brought out, uh, even in the awareness of the general public, the need for science and the importance of science in understanding the problem, but also in providing solutions to it. The UK has had a long tradition of uh, leadership in science. Uh, and even in the post-war period when America became the dominant country in, in science, uh, in terms of population, Britain has punched very well, you know, relative to its uh, population in terms of major discoveries, uh, recognition in the form of, you know, Nobel Prizes and things like that. But uh, more importantly, it has a culture for supporting science. And governments from all parties recognize the importance of science. And in particular, uh, this government has recently made a major commitment uh, to science in terms of uh, its funding. So I would say the UK uh, continues to be a, a, an excellent place in which to do science. And you mentioned in uh, what you were saying, the pandemic, and of course, we, we, we can't judge anything except in the, through the lens of what's going on at the moment. One of the things that has come out of that is uh, the role of scientific advice to government and the massive effort made by many scientists to help politicians make some of those decisions. What are the lessons we can draw from that about what's worked in that process and what hasn't worked so well? Yeah, I, I can tell you what, uh, I'll start with what hasn't worked. Okay. Uh, what hasn't worked is our preparedness uh, for, for the pandemic. The a viral pandemic was the number one risk on the UK's national risk register. So it was entirely predictable and yet I would say the preparation was inadequate. Uh, you know, there was concerns initially about even having hospital beds and respirators and so on. Uh, that didn't come to pass because of severe measures like the lockdown. But, you know, it, it was a scramble to, to get those things uh, yeah. in place. Uh, even things like PPE, which may have cost lives, you know, in frontline workers, uh, you know, was quite inadequate uh, for something like uh, a pandemic. And coronavirus, you know, although it's a severe uh, 
problem and a global problem. Uh, it, it could have been a much worse virus. It could have had the same infectivity, but a much higher fatality rate. Yeah. Uh, and, and so uh, I, would, I would say our preparedness was not great. And I think even the science community was not really alert. I mean, l let me uh, sort of offer you a kind of mea culpa, if you like. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I remember on March the 4th, uh, we were at the Council of Science and Technology. All of us were sitting cheek by jowl, uh, no social distancing or masks or anything like that in the cabinet room at number 10. Okay, this is many, many weeks after uh, the, you know, coronavirus pandemic had spread. Italy was in the throes of it. And there didn't seem to be, at that meeting, we were discussing how Britain should become a, long-term global science superpower. There was no real discussion among us. And I think at the Royal Society, we didn't respond until the middle of March. Now, actually by late January, you know, knowledgeable people were already aware that it was a you know, major problem that was going to uh, spread throughout the world. Uh, so I would say, I, I, this is not true, by the way, necessarily of government scientists, because I know that SAGE met uh, even as early as January uh, to dis discuss what to do about uh, the pandemic and so on. I'm talking about the general science community's response. Now, once the problem became serious, the one, once there was a uh, reasonable level of transmission within Britain, and it was clear it was growing exponentially and measures had to be taken. Then I think, you know, there was a, a, a very good response from the science community. Uh, there were a lot of people who contributed to government uh, input, uh, you know, through the SAGE mechanism, but also outside it. So I would say the science community has tried to, to help in, in many ways. And of course, uh, this includes long-term solutions. For example, Britain is leading uh, in the effort to develop a vaccine. Uh, it is, uh, has a, a strong pharmaceutical industry, which is involved in uh, pharmaceutical measures, providing drugs and uh, other therapies that could uh, help with it. So I think the strength of British science is showing itself in various ways. Uh, but, you know, there were... I would say missteps and disagreements, things like that, which uh, could perhaps have been avoided. And we heard early on in the crisis, but less so now, I guess, um, politicians saying that they were following the science, um, which is an interesting phrase. Uh, and I don't know what you think about that particular phrase, but do you think there's clarity between what the scientific advice is and should be doing and what the decisions are that need to be taken? Yeah, there is a, there is a sort of gap between uh, what the scientific advice is and what policy should be. So uh, I'll give you a, 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 an example that I'm uh, personally familiar with. So initially, there's quite a bit of disagreement among scientists about whether face masks are useful or not. Mm -hmm. And I happen to be on the side advocating the use of face masks. And what really 
changed the equation was the knowledge that uh, the virus could be transmitted asymptomatically. And, and this meant you could be walking around infecting other people without realizing it sure. because you didn't have symptoms. And I think that for me definitely changed the equation. And, and so, um, but there was some disagreement about, you know, because of the lack of statistical evidence, randomized control trials, et cetera. But my feeling was in the middle of a pandemic, you need to uh, take other kinds of evidence when you can't have the gold standard evidence and do what is uh, properly precautionary. So that's one thing. So that's a science advice was to uh, wear a mask where you cannot socially distance, you know, and especially in public spaces and especially in, in uh, indoor uh, spaces. Now that's the science, but the policy uh, was all over the place. For example, you know, initially it was just sort of recommended. Of course, nobody bothered. I mean, you know, uh, this sort of source control that is preventing other people from being infected only works if a large majority are wearing masks. Okay. Sure. It doesn't work otherwise. So you have to make sure that that's the normal uh, behavior. You have to normalize it. So then they decided to uh, have it in public transport, but having it in public transport, but not other spaces like shops, uh, like workspaces, et cetera, it, it makes no sense, you know? So there has to be a consistency. If you believe that masks are going to be useful in lowering transmission rates, then you've got to apply it in all the situations where it applies. And of course you have to consider how long people can tolerate it and whether some people can't wear it, et cetera. But the, it shows you the difference. Now, I was at the FST meeting, uh, you know, a few weeks ago where David King and Mark Walpert and Angela McLean spoke. And there was a difference of opinion. Now, David King was a former CSA, felt that scientists should be more active in the policy space. In other words, they shouldn't just sort of give advice and then leave it to government to implement policy because his point was that policy depends on science and, and there, there's, there's an interconnection between science and policy. And I must say, given what I've seen, I do tend to agree with him that perhaps scientists should be more involved in, in policy making because they're the ones who can decide, is this make, making sense or not? And, and what is the best way? And of course, the other thing is, that we're not bringing in economists and scientists together to globally optimize policy. Uh, you can have perfect public health and completely crash the economy, which will have severe consequences, including for public health. Yeah. Or you can just let the economy go and, you know, uh, and not worry about public health, but that will also crash the economy if you have terrible health problems. Uh, so, you need to bring them together to have a common uh, you know, way of attacking the problem. And that I think is something we at Delve, the Royal Society Initiative are trying to do. And I, I would encourage the government to do that as well. So they don't act as if they're antagonists. Yeah, and 
so many different elements need to be brought together in order to do that. But it's certainly interesting what you say about the point at which uh, scientists should um, shut up effectively and let politicians take decisions and, and which uh, the point to which scientists should also help politicians take decisions, not just uh, give advice. And you can see in some cases that's easy and in some cases that can be quite difficult, particularly yeah. when politicians say, well, what, what should we do? You know, I can see. Yeah, I, I think, you know, scientists perhaps are reluctant to get dragged into politics sure. and policy. I, I can understand their reluctance. But I think in highly technical matters, uh, they perhaps need to be involved uh, more in policy. Ultimately, it is government scientists who are probably helping uh, set policy. So, uh, you know, it, maybe it should be done, uh, you know, more forthrightly. Mm -hmm. So I, I think this is a, a matter of debate and it's not going to be settled uh, anytime soon, but perhaps it's something to consider in a kind in a post facto, uh, you know, review of, of, of how things worked. Uh, this, uh, you know, advice versus policy, uh, you know, debate, uh, sure. that needs to be considered seriously. Sure, and I have no doubt that that, that will be reviewed uh, so that as the crisis goes through and hopefully uh, comes to some kind of conclusion. Um, let me take you somewhere else. You've warned in the past about the potential risks of UK science of the UK leaving the European Union. Uh, now, of course, we have left the EU, although we're still working through the transition period. Um, what does the government need to do? What does the scientific community need to do to minimise and mitigate the risks um, that leaving the EU gives us? Well, again, there are two issues. One is that there's a broader economic issue. What will be the economic consequences of leaving without a deal? And, uh, you know, there are short-term consequences and long-term consequences, which are, uh, the long-term ones are more debatable. Uh, Short-term, I think it, it, most economists feel that we would take quite a hit if we left without a deal. Now, the reason that affects science is that the economy and science are, are interlinked. You know, if the economy goes down, then, you know, support for science will go down. It'll be a less desirable place to to work, etc. So I think one shouldn't dis dismiss the non-scientific aspects of the uh, no deal, even for science. Uh, if you come directly to science, one of the reasons British science has flourished in the last 40 years is that we have played a big leadership role in EU-wide science. And we have formed lots of collaborations and networks uh, throughout Europe. And that uh, is under jeopardy. If we walk away without a deal, then we won't be participating in Europe-wide science. And it's not just a matter of money alone. It's a matter of Britain being seen as a, a magnet for European science, as a leader in European science, someone, a country that helps set the agenda for the future of European science. So I think it's very, very important from a British point of view, but also from a European point of view, uh, that uh, Britain and the EU come together uh, and get a, a good deal on uh, scientific collaboration. 
regardless of what else happens. Although I think at least the EU side likes to tie in, you know, nothing is settled until everything is settled. So, uh, you know, a deal on science may depend on a broader uh, deal. Uh, the, the de a deal on science is also important because if we sort of walk away from the EU and all of these collaborations that we've established uh, over the last 40 years, it sends a subtle message that we're walking away from collaborations. But at the same time, we want to be an open Britain, a global science superpower, attract the best in the world, etc. Now, if we want to do that, we have to show that we're at least maintaining the collaborations we've already nurtured. Uh, otherwise, there's a cognitive dissonance between uh, that. You know, somebody who's not in the EU will say, well, wait a minute, you know, aren't you fellows becoming much more insular? And, uh, you know, we, you're saying that you want global collaboration, but you're walking away from the ones you already have. So I, I think it, we, we need to try to overcome that. And if there's a no deal, we need to work extra hard to make it very clear that Britain wants to be an open science mm. society, that we welcome talent from all over the world. We're going to make it easier. And in fact, the government has made very important steps in, in the change to its visa regime, which used to be atrocious, fr frankly, yeah. uh, but uh, it's much better now. And so we need to publicize that, publicize all the steps we've taken to ensure that uh, Britain is going to welcome talent from all over the world and provide a good environment for them when they come here. So I think that that's very important, but our work will be harder if we leave the EU without a deal. For sure. And there is so much involved in the uh, negotiations and discussions uh, over the next few months. Um, let me take you somewhere else again. Um, one of the recommendation, recommendations sorry, that's come up in the uh, R&D roadmap that the government published recently uh, is to create a, a new funding body based on the US uh, ARPA, the Advanced Research Projects Agency. What's the view that you have and the Royal Society behind that kind of development? I, I think there is a, a, a mixture of views. There are people in the Royal Society leadership who are uh, enthusiastic about uh, a, a different approach to some kinds of science. Uh, I should point out that ARPA is not a substitute for the normal uh, mechanisms of science funding. So if you look at the US, where, which has one of the more successful models for ARPA or DARPA, uh, you, you'd find it's no more than a few percent of the science budget uh, of the US. So my view is, the, the second thing to note is that a lot of ARPA, even before it was became DARPA, which is Defense mm. uh, Advanced Research Project Agency, even before it became DARPA, a lot of it was driven by uh, defense and military applications. Uh, you know, even the, uh, I mean, the internet was not strictly uh, a, initially a military application. It was to allow supercomputers to talk to each other 
at multiple sites because it's too expensive to fund supercomputers every year in every one of those sites. Uh, but it was very quickly realized that this, this would provide resilience to military uh, computers, for example, nuclear installations uh, that were uh, separated and so on. So I think we have to realize that DARPA is primarily pushing the limits of engineering. Mm. It is less about fundamental discovery. Uh, something like the internet or computers or uh, indeed GPS, these are strength, you know, these are all, uh, uh, you know, DARPA or ARPA successes, were built on decades of fundamental science. I mean, something like GPS depends on the general theory and special theory of relativity, which, you know, uh, was over 100 years old. Yeah. So uh, it's not a substitute for the normal mechanisms of science funding. And it, it is more of an engineering application, which is pushing the limits of technology beyond what is possible today, or it's bringing disparate uh, parts of technology together and combining them to make possible something uh, that isn't possible today. So it has its own use. And what we would have to do if we were wanted to be successful here is we would have to adopt some of the mechanisms of ARPA, which is to hire managers uh, and teams and then let them just go on and do uh, the project with minimal interference uh, and also make sure that it's not a continuing project. They get five years of funding yeah. and then it's it. That's it. You know, if you've succeeded, great. If not, uh, you failed and you accept a very high failure rate. And then you have to define the problems. The problems have to be something that would be groundbreaking in terms of their impact. And uh, they would have to uh, somehow, you know, fall into that narrow crack that, you know, it's just beyond the realm of feasibility today. But if you were to give people the freedom and, and funds to do it, it would happen. And it would have to have a major impact. That is, if the thing worked, it would change society in significant ways. And finally, I want to point out things like the internet and GPS, even after they were invented, took over 20 years to have a major impact. People think the internet was invented in the 90s. That's not true. It was, you know, around, uh, you know, 15 or 20 years earlier. And uh, so, and the same thing with GPS. GPS was around a long time before the iPhone came along and then other smartphones yeah. picked yeah. it up. So going from this invention to broad societal impact is a separate issue, you know, and that's something that uh, could take a very long time. Yeah, and that does then make uh, us make sure that we have the right things, as you said, to accept and allow and expect a high failure rate and also to expect and allow and, and accept a long transition time between some of what's done and, and the major impact. And uh, we've not always been as good as we could have been, I guess, in the UK in some of those, no. some of those things. And that's a separate problem. You know, once you make the invention, how do you prevent it from simply being 
seized by some American uh, company, you know, and exploited. Uh, how do you try and keep a lot of the, uh, you know, capital gains within the UK and a yeah. lot of the growth? And that's a whole separate problem of capital markets and, sure. ca you know, uh, how, to, how to have sustained growth within the UK. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, one final question before we leave. You're uh, coming to the end of your time as president of the Royal Society uh, this November. What advice would you give your successor, Professor Sir Adrian Smith, uh, when he takes I, over from you? Yeah, I have to say, I don't think he needs any advice from me. He's the, <laughs> he, you know, he has a long, uh, you know, he's a consummate ins insider. In, in a sense, we're almost opposite. I was a, a, a very much an outsider, someone who spent most of his life outside the UK, parachuted into the LMB, which, where I'm sitting now, which is a somewhat insular place, even within Cambridge. And then suddenly I was, you know, asked if I wanted to be president of the Royal Society, which is a very hard thing to turn down. And uh, I expected to be a kind of cheerleader for, for British science and meet interesting people and so on. And instead, I was hit by Brexit very early in my term. And instead of being resolved uh, quickly, it's dragged on right through to the end of my term. And uh, then I was hit with this pandemic, you know, and uh, we had to respond to that and, uh, you know, re and adjust our ways of working to that. So I've had to react to external crises uh, yeah. throughout my entire term. And other things that I was interested in like education, broadening education, international relations, uh, public engagement, those things have, I've tried to keep those things going along in the background. But to be honest, they haven't had the same, you know, the public and government haven't had yeah. the same bandwidth yeah. uh, for those problems, even though we've kept pushing on those in those areas. So, uh, that's been my experience. So I, what I would hope for Adrian is that he doesn't have, uh, you know, multiple crises in his <laughs> term. Hopefully these crises will be on their way to being resolved so that he can think more long-term and, and, and do what he wants. But as I say, he has had vast experience in both government and, you know, he was vice chancellor, of London University and uh, director of the Turing. So he doesn't really need much advice from me. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, so thank you, Ramon Christian. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast of the Foundation for Science and Technology. This week, I was in conversation with Professor Savenki Ramakrishnan, President of the Royal Society. All our previous podcasts are available on the Foundation's website at www.foundation.org.uk. On the website, you can also find recordings of all our events, including the one on science and politics mentioned by Professor Ramakrishnan in this podcast. To keep up to date with all our events, blogs and podcasts, you can follow us on Twitter at at FoundSciTech. Next week, I'll be discussing the ethics of using artificial intelligence and algorithms in modern policing with Tom McNeil, Strategic Advisor to the West Midlands Police and Crime Commissioner.